Before uh, I get into uh, talk seven, uh, nurturing our relationship with God is the title, and uh, it's really I'm going to talk tomorrow morning about the means of grace, part one, means of grace, part two. This really almost could be the means of grace, part one. It's almost a a preparatory message uh, for that. But before I uh, before I do that, a couple of things. One is. I certainly hope, and it's, uh, you know, my prayer, and it is quite frankly continually before me, that even though what I'm doing here is um, in a large part pointing out what I believe uh, to be our errors in uh, modern uh, Western evangelicalism, um, by the grace of God, may none of us develop a sense of superiority because of the errors that surround us. May we strongly resist the temptation to ridicule um, when we find ourselves uh, engaged in these uh, conversations. And uh, speaking as one who has been through uh, everything I'm talking about, pretty much, uh, both as a Christian member of a church, but also as a pastor, uh, the thing that strikes me in terms of what I'm hoping will be accomplished, at least one of the things I'm hoping will be accomplished, is that the, really the devastation uh, that I've seen uh, in the lives of people will be guarded against people who find themselves in this place. So I think we really have to kind of approach this with a disposition that what we really want to do is is bless our neighbor who in fact may be our brother or sister in the Lord, recognizing that the errors that surround us are not something that we should uh, approach with any type of haughty attitude, you know, there but for the grace of God go we. And of course... um, if we really had eyes to see, we would recognize that in the graph of sanctification, we're actually not that much further down the line uh, when it really gets right down to it. I mean, uh, I am convinced that these are errors, and I think those are errors that I've come out of. But I'm, if I'm, I'm sure that if I really had heavenly eyes to see uh, my own graph of life, uh, the errors that I'm in now uh, are things that uh, truly sanctified eyes would be uh, embarrassed about as well. So I think we always have to recognize that we're this, you know, in progress here. But I've seen, friends, uh, what the type of presentation of the Christian faith that we see popular today, I've seen what it's done to people. I've seen how it's affected them in their lives. Uh, just the uh, lack of understanding of the grace of God. People who just think, well, you know what, I'll never be good enough. You know, they have this attitude, I'll never be good enough. I went to church and I tried it, I'm not good enough. I've seen the other side of it, people who are just uh, rampant antinomials. They, they live this, uh, what they call a Christian life with no regard at all for the law of God, just exercising pure licentiousness, and uh, their lives have been devastated as well. So it's really something that we've got to make sure that uh, if we approach, and if, if you're taking to heart, you know, the things that I'm saying, and you're seeking to engage with your, your neighbor, 
uh, that you're, you're approaching this not only with uh, gentleness and with a speech season to get a, a, a good response, but also with humility of heart and humility of mind and a recognition that uh, what you want to do is really uh, rescue people from a type of uh, system or a type of thinking that is har- it's harmful, not just uh, to win an argument or to beat, to beat somebody. Also, um, I was looking at my old outline in the bulletin in the seat here, and uh, I was reminiscing about a month ago and how I felt about it all. And I thought what I would do, I thought it would be interesting, at least for me, to tell you what I was going to talk about uh, just in like 30-second sound bites. So let's see. Uh, Let me go through this real quickly. Uh, I did do everything on the Monday evening session. I talked all about that, and I did all everything on the Tuesday morning, and uh, everything in the Tuesday morning session too, and the Tuesday evening session. I pretty much did all of that. Um, nurturing our, I'm doing that tonight. Nurturing our relationship with God, carnal and spiritual Christians. I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, what I left out was the led by the Spirit. Um, Wednesday evening, and basically what I was going to talk, I have rampant antinomianism, I just kind of mentioned that, and a lot of people in our, in the, that I've dealt with um, really believe that the law of God in its full effect is really no longer part of the equation. They just believe that Christians are led by the Spirit, and what they mean by that is that they believe they will intuitively do the right thing. They just will. Because now they're a Christian. And I was, I was actually on the air in a debate uh, format with a guy named Bob George. Anybody ever heard of Bob George? Bob George, a very popular people-to-people show. And he's, he is just, get out of that Old Testament, man. Get out of that. You're a believer. You're a New Covenant Christian. Get out of it. And, um, and I was on the air in a, in a discussion with him, and I asked him a question. I said, you know, well, I ask you a question, Bob. I have two ladies at my Bible study and one of them thought that as an adult you should still honor your mother and your father. The other one thought as an adult that you didn't really need to honor your mother and your father anymore. How would I figure out which one of them was right? And he said, well, you know, Jesus had great honor, you know, blah, blah, blah. I go, no, what I'm saying is how, where do I go to figure out which one of them was actually right if it's not the law of God? It's so, it just becomes pure subjectivism. And I think what a lot of these people don't recognize is that they were raised in, a, in an evangelized culture where even if they're not in a Christian household, they pretty much have been taught the Ten Commandments. And I'll tell you what, it was a rude awakening. In, it's been a rude awakening in the last five years or so when we've been engaged with a foreign nation who has a foreign God who engages really in foreign activities that we just cannot believe they're doing. You know what I'm talking about, the things we've seen on on the internet with, uh, you know, the five guys with the masks. You know what I'm talking about. I don't want to have to get into that with the kids. But you know what I'm saying, right? That in the name of their God, they take an innocent person and do this. Now, somebody might say, well, we, our country has done that. We've killed innocent civilians and what have you. But I'll tell you what, you'd better hide it. You'd better hide it from an evangelized nation if you target civilians. You better, you can't run on that platform. It's in a different worldview altogether. It's an entirely different way of approaching life. What people in our culture forget is that they were raised in an evangelized culture surrounded by the ethics of the Ten Commandments. 
And then when they become a Christian, they start obeying the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, they already probably knew because they were raised in this culture. And yet, at the same time, they're saying, we don't need those. We don't need the Ten Commandments. We're led by the Spirit. And, uh, you know, when we tried to exercise church discipline years ago, imagine trying to exercise church discipline when somebody said, I left my wife, but I really believe God wanted me to do this. I felt comfort with the Spirit, and the Spirit led me to, you know, leave my spouse. And we're like, but you had no biblical justification. And they're like, who are you to question what God is doing in my life? See, there's no objective way to really handle the sin in anybody else's life. And quite frankly, there's no objective way to determine whether or not what you're doing or thinking is sin itself. It's led by the Spirit. And I was going to, you know, talk a little bit about that. Um, Dispensationalism by default. I did talk a little bit about that. Talked a little bit about the charismatics and uh, that there's some questions we're brought up. I left out this one, the Christianity by the numbers. But I kind of refer to it. Maybe you know what I was gonna, where I was going to go with this. We basically have people who want to go from baby Christians to mature Christians with a 12-week program. And they don't understand that you never graduate from church. You know, well, yeah, there's a graduation ceremony and it includes, it includes a box that you're in. And, uh, but you, this is something that happens all your life. You know, we shouldn't look for short, quick answers. You know, what we want to do is recognize it's a long process where it's a marathon that we're running. And I, I mentioned here a pernicious pr- uh, promise of purpose. And I, I really felt that that's a big thing, you know, the promise, uh, the, uh, the purpose-driven, purpose-driven life. It's a huge thing. And, I, and again, uh, I've seen people go through those types of progr- programs over the year thinking that after the end of the 40 days, because it's a 40-day program, you're going to somehow arrive someplace. And so they make the commitment, and they get to the end of the 40 days, and things are going well for a while. But it's really, it's really, it really doesn't work, and it targets... That's why I think it's pernicious. It targets the most vulnerable people in the churches. It targets the person who really needs help. And they're going, that will help me. So I'm going to do that 40 days. And they do the 40 days, and they're hoping at the end of it, they're going to come out the other end of the tunnel, and lo and behold, they haven't. And uh, so we have a very program-oriented Christendom as opposed to people who recognize they're part of a covenant family. They're going to all the days of their life be sanctified by the Lord. They will struggle with sin until the day they die, and then God will bring them home to glory, and that will be the end of their contention with sin. And along with that, I mentioned the 15 weeks to godly parenting, and uh, there's a little bit of that going on, you know, with... uh, you know, growing kids God's way and all this kind of stuff, you know, where people just get into it and it works for them and then they swear by it. And then uh, if, you're, if you aren't doing growing kids God's way, I don't know if that affected the OPC because I wasn't part of it then, but in our, in our little group, if you weren't doing uh, growing kids God's way, which we weren't really doing, we were kind of looked at as second-rate parents. You really don't care about your kids, obviously, because you're not growing kids God's way. So we started a program, Growing Kids Dagon's Way, and... No, just kidding. We didn't start that. Talked a bit about what it means to be uh, what a covenant is. And I know that Roger talked about that all last year, uh, to be people of promise, to be children of promise. And, and I'm not talking about, but you know what? That whole concept escapes people altogether. I mean, I have to say, I was a pastor of a church, and if you had asked me to explain what does it mean to be in the covenant, I, couldn't have given you, I could not have given you an answer to that question. And then promise keepers versus the promise keeper. And again, I don't want to get down on everything. And I realize that, you know, 
that there's good elements to a lot of things, and I'm sure there's some good elements to Promise Keepers, but we had a guy who come to, came to our church. He transferred from our church to another church because he didn't want to go to Promise Keepers, and at his church, he was browbeaten continuously because he didn't want to go to Promise Keepers, and he said, look at it, I'm a promise breaker. And his comment was, I believe in the promise keeper. And I thought, isn't that, isn't that interesting? And yet I think that escapes us as well. And I'm not against the fact that, you know, there's a, a, a role for husbands to play and they should go there and learn. It's good stuff. But, you know, they send me their stuff. They send me their material. They try to get us to go and I'm looking. And there's not one reformed guy speaking. Not one. I mean, it's not like there aren't any reformed preachers out there. But it's just really, and, you know, and, and I, as I talk to people about it, maybe some of you went there, it's, it's really absent in terms of the gospel, in terms of really focusing in on the promise keeper. And I don't mean to be too down on that, but nonetheless, that's one of the things also. I will be talking about the offices and work of Christ. Uh, perhaps this one got your attention, Clark Van Til and Billy Graham. I had, a, I had a real good one planned for that. But let me just tell you in a nutshell where I was going with that. These guys all basically were similar generation. I think Graham's a little younger. Uh, Clark and Van Til got in an argument, I guess, and the argument went on and on and on and on. And um, while they were in there, and I don't want to sound irreverent because I respect, you know, Clark and Van I respect these guys, I do. But while Clark and Van Til were in the corner arguing, Billy Graham was speaking to a billion people. And I guarantee you this, that if we had a debate up here with Clark, Van Til, and Billy Graham, Billy Graham wouldn't have anything to say. I guarantee you, theologically, he was no match for those guys. And yet, if you look at the 20th century and what happened, yeah, Clark is, nobody even knows who he is. Van Til has a following within reform circles, but everybody knows who Billy Graham is. And it's, quite frankly, his theology is not good theology, and what has happened in Christendom during his watch has not been good. And yet he's talked to a billion people. I guess my point there is, that there is something precious that God has given uh, to us, I think, as Reformed Christians, and it can't be hidden under a peck measure or a bushel. It needs to get out there. It needs, people need to hear it. And uh, I don't have any big giant strategy on how that's to take place, but that needs, in my opinion, that needs to happen. People need to hear the truth, and they need to hear it from the best scholars available. And the people who are popular right now, in my opinion, aren't the best scholars available. I, quite frankly, um, it always kind of shocks me. You know, I mean, I listen to our own OPC guys, and I think, gosh, this is so good. And there's just, you know, s s small groups of people listening. And, and God bless that. And yet, at the same time, you turn on, and you listen to a guy like Charles Stanley, and you turn around, and he's got a stadium full of people. And I'm listening to the way he's exegeting a text, and I'm thinking, this isn't, there's something wrong here. There's something not right here. So I entitled that uh, Billy Graham, Clark Van Til and Billy Graham, and then Hungry Christians. And what I have found is that if you're willing to engage, there are people, friends, who are willing to listen. I mean, they're, they're hungry to hear, and like I said before, there's a confusion out there. They're hungry to hear a sound, co cogent, cohesive presentation of the law and the gospel of Jesus Christ if we can find the market or the venue you know, to do that. And then my last section here that I was going to talk about is what can we learn from uh, modern Western evangelicalism? Because as much as, uh, you know, I'm pointing out errors, I think there's some really good qualities 
that all, we also have to recognize, and maybe, and maybe, just maybe, uh, qualities that we should imitate, that, you know, in them, you know, where they have it on us. Uh, one, I think, is enthusiasm. There seems to be a real enthusiasm in terms of people who are willing to get out there and, and hit the streets and make it happen. Um, there's just a lot of evangelism that's taking place. I mean, when I talked about all those people who went and evangelized me, none of them were Reformed. They were all from different kind of modern evangelical communities. When I asked earlier how many of you became Christians as a a result of a Reformed preacher or a Reformed evangelist, I think we had two or three people raise their hand. It was a small group. Well, that's not happening with them. They're very enthusiastic, and, you know, they're out there hitting the streets trying trying to make it happen. Maybe they... Uh, you know, their zeal is not according to knowledge, but it's zeal nonetheless. And uh, I think there's, that's admirable. They have a concern for the lost. You know, they, they, they're going after those people who don't know Jesus and, you know, the guy in the workplace and the person across the street. And there's, there seems to be a real, a real genuine, um, you know, empathy for people. And I know that when I was with Campus Crusade for Christ, it was over the top, you know, but everybody you looked at was a potential convert. And I remember thinking, I could not go to a restaurant without thinking, how am I going to witness to the waiter? I couldn't walk down the street without thinking, is this a divine encounter was a term they had, you know. And a divine encounter was anybody who stopped and looked at you for more than a second. Divine, sure. Now that got to be almost overbearing where it's like, oh, I can't do anything without somehow transitioning this into the, you know, gospel presentation. And I felt that became a little bit fabricated, a little canned, you know, like I was selling Amway or something. You know, yet at the same time, one thing I hope I never lose is a concern for the lost, where I have friends and people I run into on a regular basis, and uh, they're outside the covenant. They're lost, and they need to hear the message. And I think we see that largely in the evangelical community. They invite their friends to church, and we should do the same. We should engage. I think, I think the wider community uh, of evangelicals are generally very good at that. Three, they're willing to engage. And that is that, you know, they, they have little terms, you know, like, um, gosh, what was the term we used to use? It's a faith stretcher, you know, this type of thing. You know, that's a faith stretcher for you because you're afraid to say something, but you've got to say it, you know, and there was this conviction. Now, again, that can be over the top, but at the same time, you know, we can, we can be under the bottom, I guess, at the other side, where we're not saying anything and we're never willing to engage, and we've got to be willing to engage at some level. Better to engage and maybe to have it not turn out the way you would have hoped it to turn out than to not engage at all. You know, as Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And taking the culture, as much as their, theolo- their theology is a theology that says the culture is going to become decimated and being taken over, it's going to be taken over by the Antichrist, their actions are just the opposite. They own their own radio stations. Right? They own their own newspapers. They have their own TV stations. I mean, they're taking the culture. I don't, I, again, I think their theology is wrong, but boy, look what they're doing. And I think that's something that you know, we can imitate as well, that we need to kind of get involved and recognize that, that God has called us to, to bring that out there and to bring the message, the message out there. And I'm going to talk a little bit more, more about that on my very, last, my very last talk. Now, having said all that, I just want to let you know that my talk tonight is short because I just spent 15 minutes, uh, you know. But I did spend 15 minutes going over like four talks or five talks. just goes to show you what I really could do. All right? This could all, my talks could have been over Monday and we could just be shooting the bow and arrow all week. 
I'd like to read Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wing you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Let us pray. Father God, truly You have spoken to us in such nurturing terms. We pray, Father, that we would understand how it is, Father, you would love and and nurture, cultivate and protect us. Help us, Father, to continually avail ourselves of those things that you have supplied for our sanctification and our assurance and our strength. And we pray, Father, for our Christian culture that they also would look to the things, Father, that you have provided, that they might be strong in the faith. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I was uh, teaching a class, and there was a family that was coming to it, and they have been making, again, the transition. I, I deal with a lot of people making this transition, and, and the wife, she's on board. She's like, well, you know, we're reformed, you know, and the kids who are like young teenage kids, and they're like on board. But the dad, the dad's pretty, you know, he's pretty charismatic, super, super nice guy, sweet guy, sits down, explain it to explain it to me, I explain it to me. He's like, okay, I get it. Then the next week, it's like, Okay, tell me that again, you know. And he's really having a hard time, like, grasping it. And I was teaching, I think it was probably the Westminster Confession or one of the evening classes that I do. It could have been any number of cycle I go through. And um, he raised his hand. And he goes, but Pastor Paul, explain to me the nature of your relationship with God. I go, what? Come again? Explain to me the nature of your relationship with God. And I said, well, I'm the sinner, and he's the one who saved me. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the interaction, your interact. He wants to know, like, he's got kind of a charismatic background, and he wants to know, how is this flame kept alive between you and God? You seem so enthusiastic. Where is this coming from? Because that's where he is. He is in this thing where he's daily, as kind of a, you know, an ex, he's not really a charismatic anymore. He's still you know, on the bubble here somewhere. But it's this thing where he's daily seeking after this vitality that God is going to give to him if he can just plug it in. So he's asking me where this comes from. Now, I don't know if you realize today the certain things that have been brought to the forefront in terms of this type of stuff. The disciplines are huge. Anybody heard of Renovare? Renovare is this a movement. It's, it's a thing where, you know, there's prayer, meditation, fasting, solitude, quietude. These things have become very popular with Richard Foster, um, Dallas Willard, and so on. And although I can't argue against anything I just said in a, in a certain sense, um, many evangelicals have become very Romish when it comes to their interaction with God. Uh, there's this real hardcore pursuit of pietism. Uh, we had a family leave our church who was very influenced by, uh, anybody heard of Bill Gothard? Anyone familiar with that? Okay. Oh, wow, Bill Gothard. Very influenced by Bill Gothard and his views of what piety was. And 
you know, we, uh, we, we don't have a rule uh, in our church that you can't drink alcohol. You know, we don't, we don't make that rule. I was actually not accepted to a, my last seminary. I reg- you know, I had to re, um, what is it, what's it called when you have to get in, uh, reapply, you know, reapply. I'd already been there twice. I had a degree from there. But I wouldn't sign uh, their statement of faith, and I wouldn't sign their code of conduct. And in the past, they let me just get away with that. But for some reason, they weren't going to buy it this time, so I'd have a meeting. And they're like, okay, what's the deal? I go, well, I have a more of a historical view of eschatology, and I'm not a premillennial dispensationalist, and I believe the church is really the Israel of God. And they're like, well, okay, as long as you don't tell anybody. I'm like, all right. I'll only speak when spoken to. And then they go, you know, and I, go, and I wouldn't sign the code of conduct, which was you wouldn't drink alcoholic beverage. And they're like, yeah, you've got to not do that. I go, well, you know, we use alcohol in communion. They're like, okay, we'll let you do that. I go, well, let me just tell you, I have a hard time making a vow to not do something that I know my Savior did do. And they're like, sorry. I'm thinking it's so interesting. Jesus wouldn't get accepted into that seminary. There are churches where Jesus, I mean, I, I, don't, I think the exegesis necessary to prove that Jesus didn't drink. Matthew 11, right? John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you accused him of having a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Not only did he drink, he made wine for people who had already been drinking, and he had it recorded in the Bible so we could read about it 2,000 years later. Now, I'm not advocating drunkenness, but, you know, with the whole, uh, you know, Gothard thing, it's like whatever you do in, I think, uh, Denise was telling me this, whatever you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. In excess. I think there's a certain element of truth to that, so I guess I'll stop eating because all my children will become gluttons. What you have to do is demonstrate that the thing you're doing in moderation is actually wrong because anything you do in excess is wrong. Virtually anything, right? There are, did you realize there are over 100 anonymous organizations now? Right? It's not just Alcoholics Anonymous or Cocaine's Anonymous or they have uh, you know, Smoking Anonymous. You have People Anonymous. You could be addicted to people. There's over, there are over 100, you know, there's television. I probably would have to join Television Anonymous. We had to get rid of our television. I, ca- I couldn't stop watching it. My wife, she could sit there and look at the kitchen while the TV was on. I'm like, how can you not watch the TV? It's on. I'm addicted to television, so the only way I can get, I had to do what I did with the little bottle. I had to throw it away. I can't, I can't, you know, we all can get addicted to everything, but you have to demonstrate that the thing is actually inherently evil before you say, in my, anyways, we had a family. They were part of our church. They became members, but because there were elders in our church who moderately consumed alcohol, they left because they hadn't been influenced by a parachurch organization that basically said, if you want to really pursue God, that's got to be gone. That's got to be out the window. These parachurch and charismatic personalities. We talked a little bit about them. I won't go through that, but I think people don't realize that they are walking through their Christian lives guided by the institutes of parachurch, oftentimes self promoting parachurch and autocratic charismatic personalities or individuals. They don't, people don't realize the power other people have over them. We, I was just talking to somebody about this who was out here talking about how dangerous it got in their church where. Anything, it was a non-denominational church, I guess, but anything their pastor said, that was law. You don't question. If you're in a debate, the the end of the debate was, yeah, but Pastor Paul said such and such. Okay, I guess that's the end of that. It's a really dangerous uh, policy to have. 
So we're discussing here the, the nurturing of that relationship and how it should take place. Now, I'm actually not going to get to that tonight. But let me just tell you the experience that I went through and I think a lot of Christians go through. You come to faith. Right? You come to a meeting. You hear a message. And you've become a Christian. By the grace of God, your eyes have been opened to see the truth and the glory of Jesus, and He rescues you from death and darkness. Right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. By the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous, your sins have been pardoned. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But lo, your sin remains and is ever before you. Psalm 51, 3. You feel quite similar today to the way you felt yesterday. The God who is your refuge and your fortress doesn't seem to be protecting you from yourself. You're different. And yet you're so very much the same. I mean, that, you think about that event. I, see, I had the event. I don't know, maybe, where you walked forward and the music was playing. And you walked up there with your sins, you know. And you heard the message, you know, that those sins are all gone. You're, they're wiped away. And Jesus will never leave you, never forsake you. And you walk down La Tabula Rasa, right? Just a clean slate. And maybe even for a day or two, you kind of feel like you're still doing pretty well. But lo, your sin is ever before you. And God, who promised to be your refuge, God, who promised to be your fortress, doesn't seem to be protecting you from your own sinful nature. You might be protecting me from them, but Lord, I need protection from myself. I'm still sinful. Oh, how we long for that feeling of cleanliness which subdued our souls that hour we first believed. I remember how great that felt. You know, you go up there and it's just, it's all, the sin is just all gone. It's all, you know, it's... What is it? Is as deep as the deepest ocean, and the no fishing sign is put up there, right? As far as the east is from the west, right? The Bible says. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. You know why? Because if you go north, eventually you start going south, and those are the places where north and south actually touch. But if you keep going east, you're never going west. So when he says as far as the east is from the west, that's forever, right? It never, it never happens. And that's what you're told. Though your sins are as red as crimson, it'll be white as snow. And there's this great sense that my sins are gone. We so desire that feeling. We so desire that way we felt, that hour that we first believed. When we were a different person. When we were a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 but how quickly that old man came and knocking. So what are we to do? How do we keep that flame alive? How do we nurture and feed and keep warm our relationship with our Savior? We must keep in mind that it is woven into our nature, even our new nature, to leave the God we love. Isn't that what the hymn says? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. It's just woven into us. Even as a regenerate man, there's something about us where we go, you know what, I, 
there's a, there are, there's a war going on, you know, in a certain sense of justification. I'm a new man. I'm a new creature. But in a sense of sanctification, I've got to take off the old man, right, and put on the new man. So there's two things going on here. By the way, that distinction, and I'm not talking about that this week, and it, maybe I should, but that distinction of justification and sanctification is completely blurred in terms of the way my Christian friends think. They don't get that at all in terms of recognizing that, you know, we're justified as a single past action based upon the righteous actions of another. It's, a, it's something that happens between Jesus and the Father that he does for us. It's a forensic declaration of pardon and acquittal. And that the sanctification is actually the, the thing where we are, cha- that, you know, where God is, you know, conforming us into the image of his son. That distinction is really a distinction, I think, you know, I don't have it here, but that's a good conversation to have as well. So let's think about this. I mean, I don't know if you, how much you wrestle with this. Like I said earlier, I, you know, I, I so, uh, you know, wish the children here recognize what a great blessing it is that God has brought you up in the covenant household, that you might think the thoughts of Christ and be instructed in the ways of the Lord from your parents at a young age, because I wasn't. And that old stuff's still in my, it's still in my head. And so I remember feeling uh, wonderful when those sins were washed away. I remember there was actually a feeling. There was definitely a distinction. You know, and you, maybe you've been to these meetings where people get up and they show their testimonies and the guy with the worst testimony wins, right? I, was, I hated everybody and I was in prison and I shot the guards and I killed everybody and I killed myself. But I came back to life and then Jesus saved me. And you're like, wow, I, how can I top that? Well, I went to Mars and the Martians, I killed Martians and you know, it's like, oh, who, you know, who can have the worst possible life, you know? And it's this big thing where you're almost glorying in how bad your past is. And I didn't, my life wasn't all that crazy, you know. But nonetheless, there was a sense where I recognized and I felt that there was a sense of, well, this really feels good to have my sins washed away. And I think about that woman of ill repute in Luke 7. You know, the woman who wept at the feet of Jesus. You know, what an uncomfortable situation. Right? She walks into the Pharisee's house. So, you know, she's just, I mean, how good was her theology? I don't know. But she knew enough to know to go to Jesus, right? Weep at his feet, or, you know, wash his feet with her hair. How must that have felt for her to hear the words of absolution from Jesus himself? Your sins are forgiven. God, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, we, I don't know if you're, we do declaration of pardon in our church service. I imagine many of your churches do that. And as I get older, I appreciate that more and more. You know, I, I hope it never becomes rote. I hope it's something that as we get older, you're like, well, you know what, that's my favorite part, the declaration of pardon. But to hear from the words of Jesus, what incomparable absolution, your faith has saved you, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. To hear that from Jesus. But did she not, this woman, in one way or another, sin again? I mean, right? I mean, that story ends there, but this woman went on, right? She lived on. Did she not sin again? To whom would she flee with her new sin? Did she once again weep at his feet? Would it not seem reasonable that she, that everybody, have need of taking permanent residence at the feet of Christ? Do we really think we're that much different than that woman? Do we not recognize that we are, in a sense, that woman? And that we need to hear 
from the mouth of our Savior. Day in and day out, as it were, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Do we not want to hear that? That, my friend, is what my Christian friends want to hear. They want to hear over and over. That's the nurturing, that things are okay between me and God. Go in peace. They want to hear that every day. We need to take residence at the feet of Jesus for wisdom, for assurance of pardon, for nurturing. But how does this happen now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father? You see, it's one of the problems in exegesis when we have these real physical contacts with Jesus and then we try to somehow imitate that while, now that he's physically gone. How, how do you do that now? How do we now, with a risen Savior, nurture and feed and keep warm, if you will, our relationship with God? How do we dwell in that secret place of the Most High, as I read earlier, in such a way that the very sin that in one sense is ever before us is really not allowed entrance in a certain sense? How do we give our hearts to God that He may, as the hymn says, seal it from His courts above? How does that happen? I think here we have you know, the remedial Christianity, quite frankly, of historic proportions. From the ascetic fathers, you know, the church fathers, the ascetics who just went out in the desert and, right, and practiced this crazy self-denial for days and weeks and months and years, to the monks of Roman Catholicism, to the modern emphasis, as I said earlier, of fasting and solitude, quietude, isolation, meditation. Men have been remarkably innovative and novel in seeking to find peace and enjoyment with God. I mean, this is a quest. And it's not just a modern quest. I mean, you can, this goes back all the way throughout the history of the church. People trying to figure out. I have a, there's a, a young lady who was in my youth group. She came from the Roman Catholicism, came into our youth group, and then, uh, you know, became a cloister nun. Now she's a cloister nun. You know what a cloister nun is? They don't ever leave. They stay in their, you know, in their um, convent 24-7, and the only time they get to leave, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is for their mother or father's memorial service. She's there the whole time. And I get, you know, her newsletter, and and it's all about finding a, a, a nurturing closeness with God. She's under the impression that she's in an environment where she is so removed from the world that she can have an intimacy with God that you and I can't have because we live in society. Someone once said, you know, it's easy to be a holy man if you're going to live on the side of a mountain. When it really gets right down to it, if you really want sanctification, you take this in the right way, get married. (laughs) Have kids. I don't mean to say that in a demeaning way, but quite frankly, I don't think there's anything that will more conform you into the image of Christ than trying to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. You know, that's, you know, studying the Bible kind of is like, uh, is uh, the classroom, and uh, loving your wife is the lab. Now, let me tell you, I don't mean to say this in any negative way, but I think my wife is great. It makes my job really easy in terms of doing that. But there's nothing more refining than actually living this life and not getting out of this life. 
And yet there is a movement that if you want to somehow be unified and united with God, what you need to do is get away from life. Well, Jesus didn't pray that prayer for us, did he, in the high priestly prayer? He said, I don't ask you to take them away from the world. I ask you to protect them from the evil one. And so we are to engage. We are not to become retreatists. I think the Amish have it wrong in terms of getting off and doing... You know, you engage. And yet there is this unquenchable desire that modern evangelicals have, maybe we all have, to somehow have that peace with God and that nurturing with God. There is, I think, in all of us, a discomfort with our behavior, which makes us fodder for the litany of behaviors which are designed to make us feel better about our Christianity. I think, don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe you're all feeling pretty good about yourself. I mean, I don't, I, I'm, believe me, I'm not, I don't have this, you know, I'm not this big self-deprecatory person. You know, I don't go around, you know, like Eeyore, right? Oh, woe is me. I hate me. I hate me. You know, I, I'm happy with life. I'm quite content. But I, when I look at myself, and I look at my Christianity, and I look at my walk with God, you know, I'm anything but satisfied that I'm a holy man. I, I look at, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm pretty realistic about it. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm a saved sinner, and I want to do the right thing, and I make the effort, I just like, and I suspect it's pretty much the same with most of you. And so, remove yourself from a, really, a real biblical understanding of justification, where that feeling now somehow makes you think that somehow you're not in the right standing with God. So you're not in a right standing with God because you don't really feel right because you're really not that righteous. You need to get more righteous. Are you ready? You know, I heard a sermon one time about the rapture. Are you ready? Was the sermon. Are you ready when Jesus comes? Because you better get your act together. Just what is it you think you're going to do between now and sundown that's somehow going to approve you before Jesus? How much of your act do you think you're going to get together where Jesus is going to go, what? This morning you were doing terrible, but... You know, by the afternoon, you're okay. Come on. You're doing all right. But that's the mentality if you don't understand the distinction between being justified by faith alone and this thing that we call sanctification where we are just fighting through life. It's a war. It's a battle. And for some of us, it's a hard battle. I I would guess at some level it should be hard for all of us. But that makes us all fodder, if you remember, if you my point here, if we don't understand that our right standing with God is based upon the right, the alien, as Luther said, the alien righteousness of Christ alone, that makes us fodder for anybody who's going to come up with a list of things that's going to make it happen for us. And let me tell you, the lists are coming. I call it snake oil Christianity. And uh, when I did this uh, sermon in, uh, well, this was translated into a book I have, it's in Chinese. They didn't really have a word for snake oil. So they had to make something else up. I don't know what it was, I'm not, so I'm not really sure. But you all know what snake oil is, right? You kids know what snake oil is? That's one of those things where some guy in the Old West used to stand up you know, on top of his stagecoach and go, hey, I've got some here, but this is going to cure everything you got. You got balding, it'll cure you. You got a little bit, you got a pot belly, it'll cure you. You're losing your eyesight, it'll cure you. It was really for me. It's going to cure everything I got. And it, and it was just, you know, snake oil. All it was was a little oil, and they drank it, and it didn't work at all. It was just a sham. It was a fake. Okay, well, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I call it snake oil Christianity. Let me tell you, I've reached an age where I've become a bit more concerned about my health, my heart, and longevity. 
You know, I, you know, I kidded about being 30. I'm actually 35. <laughs> so, I'm on the other side heading toward, you know, 100, I guess. And I have a baby that's eight weeks old. Uh, Lynn, can I get a little medication? <laughs> right, right now. No, just kidding. So I've become a little bit more, you know what, I want, to be, I want to be there for my kids. I want to be there, I want to be alive, I want to be active, I want to, you know, so I, I try to run, you know, and I try to, you know, think about what I eat and stay active. And somehow I was put on a mailing list of people who have the same concern as I. And uh, the purveyors of the snake oil have begun to lay siege. And the amazing amounts of mail I get from people who are guaranteeing me that, they're, that I'm going to be, uh, uh, they're, they're, well, the promises are something like this. Uh, strength, stamina, vim, vigor, vitality, good looks, etc. And so far, the only one that's worked so far is the good looks. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Gosh, I really don't like it when you laugh at those ones. No, just kidding. <laughs> Similarly, since our sin continually haunts us, all Christians find themselves on the mailing list of snake oil Christianity. Snake oil may have some very positive results. Actually, it might do something, right? But it seldom and really probably never produces everything promised. So what kind of snake oil can we expect? What what is the snake oil that I get still since, uh, keep in mind, we were part of the Foursquare denomination, and I think they still have this on one of their lists, right? And the church that we meet in right now, the building, used to be owned by the vineyard, right? So I get their mail. So I get the Foursquare mail, and I get the vineyard mail. So I get a lot of mail. So I get a lot of what I would call kind of the snake oil Christianity, and what is it? The things which we need to beware of, friends, are ever so near, And for the most part, they're not bad things in their proper sense, in their proper usage. Below, I have written down some popular answers designed to cure your flat Christian experience because people, they feel they need to plug in. You know, they need the the, the juice. Try this. Feeling estranged from God? Join a small group at church. Sin got hold of you? Increase the length of your quiet time. Desire to be more godly? Come to our men's retreat. Learn to fast. Meditate. Discover your purpose. Organize your life more efficiently. Read the seven habits of highly successful cloister nuns. Actually, I was required to read, you know, the the seven habits of highly successful whoever they were. Notice here that I didn't list anything evil. Right? Except for maybe the cloister nun book. That's a little off. I didn't list anything bad. None of this is bad stuff, right? I didn't suggest that you scream at your spouse or your children or your parents for the positive, cathartic response, right? Feeling bad about yourself? It's your parents' fault. Go yell at them. And don't think I, haven't, don't, think I don't deal with that. That's out there. That's out there in the Christian arena. You know? Get it out of your system. They need to hear it, you know? Small groups, quiet times, retreats, proper fasting, meditation, good books. I think they all have their place. But they are nowhere near the top of the list if we're going to Scripture to understand the means by which God determined the proper nurturing of His children. 
You know, there's an old saying that the biggest enemy, the, the, the biggest enemy to the best is that which is good. All right? I mean, the devil poses as an angel of light, okay? So these things aren't bad things, but they have supplanted that which is best. And if you really search the scriptures, you're going to find that this is not the answer that God gives to his children in terms of the proper nurturing. I think, friends, this is particularly significant for our Christian friends over and above our non-Christian friends. There are members of our own family, our own Christian family, if you will, who are malnourished. And it's not because they are failing to eat. Their refrigerators are full, including uh, the magnetic verses on the outside. But there are significant things missing. And I'm going to discuss that in the, in the morning. Because okay? I'm running out of time. And I'm going to end right now. I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay? I'm a little early, though. Am I not? Okay, so I'm going to leave that right now. So don't ask me because I'm going to talk about that. But we'll do a few minutes of Q&A if anybody has any questions. Yes, Father at seven. <laughs> That's the only way I know you. I'm sorry. <laughs> The question is, you know, I have all these, I have developed over the years kind of brief, you know, um, uh, you know, brief little sayings to deal with the things that I deal with. And um, no, I'm not aware of any book. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm not very aware of any book to deal with what I'm dealing with in this whole uh, topic. And Bill, uh, when we were talking, he goes, well, what are there books you want for the book table? And for the life of me, I couldn't think of any book out there that really is dealing with what I'm dealing with right now. So maybe we should go ahead and put one together or something. But no, I, I don't. I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something. It's hard for me. You know, they talk about in discipleship, what you want to do is duplicate yourself kind of. You know, you want other people to, and really what you want to do is bring people to imitate Jesus. But I have a hard time bringing people down the same road that I went because it was a, such a long, slow, circuitous route. And so uh, it's hard for me to remember the, even the books I read. Sometimes I think I'm making stuff up. And then I'm reading. I, seriously, this happened to me. I'm thinking, this is a thing. Oh, one of my old sermons. Well, that was so clever to think of that. And then I'm, re- I'm rereading uh, Hodge's Systematic Theology, and there's this old highlighter mark in there, right? And it's exactly what I thought I made up. And Hodge said it 200, you know, 150 years ago. I'm like, wow, should I give him film credit for that? But no, I, no, I don't. I don't have... Uh, I don't really have a a list or a little book or something like that for that. But I think it's good to develop those things just for the sake of conversation, you know, little ways to approach things. Yeah, Jerry.
So the question is, why does it seem that there are more Protestants today becoming Catholics as opposed to maybe yeah, or Charismatics? Charismatics becoming Catholics? Well, it's interesting, in South America, um, numerous numbers of Roman Catholics have become Charismatic. Um, I, think, I think, if you really examine it, Roman Catholicism and the Charismatic movement have a lot of similarities because they're both very mystical. Um, with the Charismatics, everybody gets to be Pope. But in the Roman Catholic, it's only the Pope who gets to speak the Word of God. But there's a natural... Uh, affinity that a lot of Roman Catholics have for the uh, mystical nature of, uh, you know, and I say that jokingly, but in reality, that's the, that's the way it's speaking ex cathedra because you're speaking the word of God. And so that's what's happening. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has made a march, you know. I mean, they have apologists now. Uh, I debated one of their apologists briefly on the air, uh, a guy named Robert St. Genis, I think St. Genis, I forget, it's Robert, and Scott Hahn. You may know Scott Hahn. Uh, he was a teacher in a reform seminary. Um, so they've, they've made a concerted effort to target Protestants and bring them back to, uh, to the to Roman Catholic Church. They're not relying on people, uh, they're not relying on the old once a Catholic, always a Catholic maxim, which uh, used to work because it's really not, it's not working. So they, there's an effort being made. Yeah, Katie. I can't repeat all of that, but if, if, those, if you heard that. But I, I think it's interesting, too, because people move to Protestantism oftentimes for the doctrine. Historically, people moved to Protestantism because it was sound doctrine. And uh, if doctrine is not an issue, um, you know, Roman Catholics own a lot more stuff. You know, it's a, I mean, a Roman Catholic, if you want an experience, they put together an experience. Have you ever been to St. Peter's Basilica? I've been there. Can you imagine? I mean, if you've ever been there, I mean, can you imagine being a 15th century peasant walking to that place? And the amazing presence. They build churches designed for a mystical experience. And so if you're not the kind of person who's going, look at, I'm here because of what's being taught, then you walk into our industrial building at our church, that, it, you know, it, uh, basically the, the biggest design we have is some fake plant on the wall versus uh, St. Sophia's Greek Episcopal Church in downtown L.A. Uh, where you look up and there's just these, these gigantic, amazing murals. It's, there's really no competition if you don't, if you aren't approaching it because you really believe that you need to hear sound doctrine because that's not really their issue. Although, again, they have these apologists now who are refuting some of the strawman arguments that Protestants make against Roman Catholics, and yet um, there was a great debate between um, Michael Horton and Bob Godfrey and um, what was the other guy from the White Horse and the Lutheran guy? Kim Rillbarger. No, not Kim Rillbarger. Rod Rosenblatt against three of the Roman Catholic apologists, which I think you know, got kind of down to brass tacks in terms of what the difference is. But, 
Yeah, Justin. All right, so the question is, how does, an, and, I, and I, you know, I'm going to have to give a really brief answer to this because that's a good question, but it requires a longer. How does an Arminian respond to Romans chapter 9, which is obviously, you know, the flagship passage for a lot of Calvinists, you know, and I, I don't think it's the only one, but I think it's definitely one of the big ones. How does an Arminian view that, and how, you know, how would we dialogue? Well, Ar Ar Arminians generally view that as uh, uh, talking about Israel. It's a very corporate thing. When they talk about, um, you know, uh, you know um, if I'm going to try to quote the whole passage, but um, uh, how does he say it? Um, gosh, you know, I, I've taught Romans 9 a million times, and I should know it by heart. But let me just take a quick look at it. Let me just tell you what, in a nutshell, where they go with this, all right? But there was one little verse in there that I, I wanted to... Um, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't have to look. Okay. Jacob I love, Esau I hate it, right? Where they go with that is Jacob is what? Is Israel, you know, this, so they make it corporate. They go, no, it's not talking about, specifically talking about Jacob. It's talking about Israel. And it's not talking specifically about Esau. It's talking about, you know, the Edomites and, you know, his offspring. So that's where they go. They kind of make it a corporate thing. And you're going, you're making a specific regeneration in terms of that person and you're applying it to yourself. But what Paul's argument here is in context is the way we should think of Israel and, and so on. All right, now they have a point. I mean, you can't ignore the Israel, you know, of God, Israel, ethnic Israel distinction that there is in Romans 9. But my response to that, first of all, is I don't necessarily agree with that, but my response is if I grant that, so what? Are you saying it's less Calvinistic for God to choose an entire nation over another entire nation? And if God did choose an entire nation, what did that choosing actually look like? And we've had this discussion in our church numerous times with guys who come in from Biola and different places who are Armenian. And they're like, no, it's talking about Israel. So God chose Israel. So you think it's okay for God. And what does that look like? Did not God's choosing of Israel actually look like him choosing specific people in Israel who would in fact, in fact respond in faith? Isn't that what it looked like? They also say, uh, you know, that God chose the church. You heard that? You know, he chose in the New Testament. He chose the church. He didn't choose you. He chose the church. Yeah. Anybody ever heard this? Yeah? No? Yeah? He chose the church. So I'm like, well, who's that? Who's the church? And this is the illustration. Well, it's kind of like, imagine a baseball team or a football team, and you're going to have a roster, but you haven't got any names on it yet. You've chosen to have a football team. Okay, so that's the, that's the illustration. Now, that is wrong on so many levels, it's hard to respond to it. You can't, there is a, there is a, yeah, the informal logical fallacy of composition and division, first of all. You can't choose a group without choosing some individuals within the group. You can't do it. It's an impossible thing to do. Anyways, that's the way they do it. They, they, they're exegesis, and quite frankly, I think their logic is really flawed in the way they approach Romans 9. But that's a short answer to a, to a long question. One more question? One last question? Yeah, Jerry, your second question. Well, no, I, I 
Okay. Your third question. Jerry's third Jerry. Yeah. We lost second Jerry in history. Yeah, ordinarily, yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, what about, you know, if, if, if salvation ordinarily comes through the church, what about missionaries and people who go out? Yeah, it's, it's, my, it's my ecclesiology, it's my belief that those missionaries or evangelists who go out should go out under the authority of the church and not as some kind of independent entity. Right. Well, yeah, because the evangelism in a, in, a, in a mission work is the establishment of a church. That's what you're doing. You're not going, okay, church isn't part of this. We're just going to go out and share the message and move on to the next guy, which is what I used to do. The evangelism was actually, you know, you're bringing the message and you're, you're going out there and you're going, hey, we're going to have a church service. We want you to come. So you're, you're, it was almost like a two-tiered thing. You brought them to Jesus. Now that they're in Jesus... You've got to figure out, you know, is there a church somewhere around? As opposed to going, you know, the means by which this is all getting started is by your inclusion in a church at the get-go. Day one. You know, not something, that is not something that's satellite, but something that when I go out and I'm talking, that there's an elder board that I'm accountable to, and when I talk to somebody, it's not just me and him. I'm representing, really, a, a council of people who are accountable to the Word of God and accountable to each other. So it's, um, and, and that's, that's, you know,